Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hey, we want to thank everybody for listening and joining us for Sober October. And uh, we want to thank all of our guests being so brave and kind to get on here and share their stories. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it's it's their I mean their addiction stories, right? So, I mean, and, and Tony, I've really never asked our listeners, but you know, we're gonna we're gonna plead with you to uh, to share this podcast with with you know any anyone really because you know you never know who who needs to hear um, these stories. Um, we've also left a couple web links in our podcast descriptions. Um, it's just a couple organizations that can help with addictions. Hey, hey, welcome to your day off. My name is Corey. Of course, I'm sitting with Bud Tone. What's up, Tony? Hey, man. Uh, great, brother. We're still in the uh, midst of Sober October. Yeah, man. Uh, you know, I'm excited for our guests to share their stories, but most important, you know, at the end of it, that someone who receives a message and, and maybe uh, can, uh, you know, just get help or, you know, mm-hmm. receive a message that's directed to them personally that, that, you know, that they'll take. But today's guest is uh, Noel Weatherwax uh, from uh, Santa Cruz, California. Santa Cruz. Yeah, her, uh, she has a salon called Concrete Rose. Concrete that's like the coolest name ever, you know, and like she actually went over the, she was on, well, let me back up, but we learned about Noel on, uh, on Nina Kovner's podcast. And uh, she actually talked a little bit about how she got the name Concrete Rose. And I highly recommend anyone listen to that podcast because it's pretty cool. And it's a pretty cool story as to how she got the name Concrete Rose. Yeah. Again, I love the name. It's, it's pretty it's hardcore. Cool. It's, it's tough. And, uh, but, uh, you know, she's, uh, She's a per- it was an amazing story, and right. you know we'll get into that a little bit. But you know, again, today is this sober October. So. Sober October. So, uh, well, I mean, I think even with concrete rose, you know, to to rise from concrete and to be something beautiful. I mean, that that that's that's probably part of her story, you know. And maybe uh, I think well, we talk about it. I guess, huh? Yeah. Should we bring her in? Let's do it. Let's do it, man. Hey, hey. So, Miss Noel, welcome to your day off. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Uh, thanks, man. I mean, we appreciate you uh, you giving us your time and giving us your story. And, and, you know, I know it's kind of brave to do, you know, not to overuse that word brave, but whenever you kind of reveal your soul, it's uh, it can be humbling, you know? Yeah, that's, that's a lot of courage. It's always a little scary, but I'm excited. Like I said, when you, when you share your story like that, it, it has to be, you know, it strikes a nerve, sensitivity. It probably brings you back to to uh to, to to visit i guess mentally yeah. in, in some of those places but we'll get there right we'll yeah. get there hey noel so uh kind of just uh, uh tell our listeners how how are you in the hair business you know what's your story the hair store 
Yeah. Okay. So um, I'm a second generation cosmetologist. My mom was also a hairstylist. Um, she went to beauty school when I was nine and I got my first job at a salon that she worked at as reception kind of helper when I was 12. Um, so I've been in the beauty industry a lot longer than people think. Um, <laughs> where where yeah, was that? Was it, is it- she worked at a great clip. So my mom was very much like a family hairstylist, like kids, men, quick, perm. She could wrap a perm in 20 minutes kind of thing. Um, and I think when people hear that I worked there, they think, oh, how cute. You probably like just swept and, you know, people just you know, thought it was adorable. No, like they worked me. I, <laughs> I had to do everything. It was booking appointments and none of the stylists cleaned their own stuff. I cleaned everything, laundry. And then when there was quote unquote, nothing to do, I had to read the backs of product bottles so that I could talk to customers about them and like sell them stuff. At so 12 and 13 were- years old. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The woman who owned that shop was not playing. She's like, you're going to be here. You're working for real. This isn't cute, fun time. You're not playing salon in here. And so that's sort of how I got introduced to the beauty industry. And um, I started beauty school when I was 16. I, uh, I stopped going to high school unbeknownst to my mom. And when she found out, hold on, hold on. So your beauty school wasn't through uh, uh, like a like a high school or something? It was a, it was a private. No. So I, I went to sort of a unique beauty school and I was funded through the ROP program, but I guess the law at the time was either you had to be 16 or have completed 10th grade, whatever that means. Mm -hmm. Um, but you didn't have to be enrolled in high school. So, um, yeah, I stopped going to high school and my mom was like, okay, I get that high school's not for everyone, but you got to do something. So what are you going to do? And I said, I wanted to go to beauty school and she was super cool about it. And she got me enrolled and yeah, so I, I've been licensed since I was 17. So that's, that's sort of where it started now. Um, all these years later, I have my own salon, um, I've been behind the chair for 15 years. Um, yeah, I mean, that's 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 my, my <laughs> beauty industry story. So it's been like a long, interesting journey uh, and all of my life pretty much. That's pretty cool. That's pretty awesome yeah. to share that with your mom. Yeah, that's pretty cool, right? Yeah. That she's yeah. a part of that story. Mm-hmm. Okay, so it's Sober October and, you know, we all know why you're here. Kind of tell us, like, like, where did that story begin? So I um, <laughs> share another thing in common with my mom. Uh, I My mom was a single mother and she struggled with addiction her whole life. Um, so I kind of grew up in that. Um, and I think when I was much younger, it was something that I was always very like, you know, the dare educated, like just say no. And, um, and then when I was gosh, 15, um, I took three hits of LSD and that was my first experience with any mind altering substance. Like I'd never had a sip of beer. I'd never smoked pot or smoked a cigarette or anything. Um, (laughs) and it was probably, as you can imagine, a very radical and kind of eye opening moment where I was like, Oh, this is why people 
do drugs. They're fun. No one ever told me that before. (laughs) Um, (laughs) You know, that's not what they educate you about in school. And, and all I had seen of it growing up was this very dark, you know, decades into addiction side of it where it didn't look like fun or partying. Um, And so then when I had that experience, it was sort of like, okay, now it's my time to do all that stuff. And, um, my mom was a heroin addict for most of my life. And Mm. so that sort of became my little asterisk on that was, I'm just not going to do heroin and I'm going to be great. Um, and so I, you know, I started experimenting with things and, um, and drinking quickly became my favorite thing. And the easiest thing to separate myself from that history of my childhood, because people look at alcohol differently. So you, thought, uh, so you thought that as long as you didn't, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but you thought that as yeah. long as you didn't do heroin, you could be successful. Totally. <laughs> Which I think is a good rule of thumb. Don't do heroin. <laughs> <laughs> you know? There's no arguing that is there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But you know, but there's it, so much, it, there's so much out there before heroin, you know, and it ended up not being the only key to success for me. There were other things that came later that were maybe good rules of thumb too. So at 15, when you did the LSD, how, how many, many years did it take for you to experience, uh, experiment with drinking? I mean, when did that take place? By the time I was 16, um, I was almost a daily drinker. Wow. At 16? So. Yeah, it was pretty quick that I got into partying and, you know, I live in Santa Cruz. Um, and so like I smoked a lot of pot too. That was like a big part of my, like how to function during the day because it's hard to be falling down drunk, but it's pretty easy to be stoned all the time in a beach town that's full of hippies. (laughs) Yeah. So, um, so like when you were drinking every day, was it just, um, I don't know, were you just drinking to drink or were you, or, or were you drunk every day? I guess is the real question. Um, I think Anytime I could get drunk, I did get drunk. Mm -hmm. That was definitely the goal, you know, and it wasn't, it, it, it started off as partying and fun. There were just a lot of people that wanted to do that around me. Um, and so it was pretty accessible and pretty easy to find like a party to go to and get like really fucked up. Right. Yeah. Wow. And that was at 16, right? Yes. So yeah, that's that's crazy, right? I mean, mm-hmm. I, I think we all, all can, uh, you know, who have, you know, partied or drink. Obviously, in the beginning, it's fun because you're with your peers. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? And it's just just a gathering. Um, but then at some point, it all changes, right? Like, yeah, I mean, your friends uh, they stop, they move on. <laughs> you, you know, <laughs> yeah. I don't. Exactly. So how 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 did that evolve? I mean, when did you? Uh, realize or did other people realize before you did that you know it was starting to become a a problem or an issue I mean you know I I had I had a ton of fun I think I I have this thing that I say that every single person gets a finite amount of best night evers I had a lot of best night evers you know and I think normal people save them for like bachelorette parties and their birthday and I was just having those on Tuesdays (laughs) um you know and then you you see when people have run out and they start having the worst night evers and those are sporadic at first where you're like you wake up and you're like oh my god what happened and it's scary um and we all know what those people look like who are having a worst night ever every night and have for like 10 years. You know, those are the people that you're like, oh, they're really an alcoholic. 
Um, but I think, you know, I started having those worst night ever's where I was in situations that weren't safe. Um, and it got scary and I, uh, woke up the next day like, wow, it's amazing that I survived, you know, getting in the car with drunk drivers or being around people that I didn't know just because they had something um, really risky, scary behavior uh, that I was not proud of. Um, And so that was when it sort of the wheel started to turn that maybe I didn't want to do that anymore, but I didn't know how to not, I didn't know how to feel my feelings. Um, I didn't want to be in the world with clarity. I think my circumstances and like the pain and trauma that I grew up with and was experiencing actively in that time um, was hard to deal with. And I think when I look back on the stuff that I did, I think in a lot of ways doing that stuff kept me alive. I don't know that I could have stayed in that pain totally straight and um made it through it you know but then it, like, it definitely hold on, hold on, to- slow down like that just kind of like shot off something you know like like all these like i don't know i don't know if it's fight or flight but just something hit me in the heart like that like like that sounds almost counterintuitive mm. right like like i couldn't survive my pain and my trauma without you know said substance sure you know like i i don't i, I don't know i i can you explain that a little bit more? It's just, I don't know. I think I didn't have any tools or coping mechanisms for my circumstances and the pain that I experienced and alcohol and drugs turned that down a little bit for me. It just took that intensity down a couple notches and it made day to day life tolerable. And I think, you know, when you're a teenager, like what teenager isn't depressed, right? Right. If it's just like a thing that we tease teenagers about all the time, it's like, oh, you're depressed. Um, But, but I think that if I had to feel those feelings, like 100% intensity, you know, I don't want to say that, um, like I would have taken my own life, but I feel like I probably would have been like had suicidal thoughts for sure, because it was something that sort of crossed my mind anyway, you know? And I think when you want to die doing things that like slowly kill you are a way to sort of make it through, you know? And in a way that's, um, it gets you another day. Like I can't take today. I'm going to do this instead of having to feel it, you know? It's pretty insightful and pretty honest. Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, uh, you you hear, uh, you know, I become numb, right? You become mm-hmm. uh, through stories that where all that does it it just lowers the intensity. It makes them numb. They don't necessarily uh, feel that that you know the real root of the pain. Mm-hmm. And, but I mean, she even took it to a different step, right? I mean, she was she was saying that the numb is what what saved her. Yeah. Right. Or, or, or what, or certainly what managed her, you know, for a few years there, mm-hmm. you know, so I guess, um, you know, using drugs, using alcohol, what, what, what did your bottom look like? Did you have a bottom? Is it, is it, um, but that, yeah, I, I think that, you know, my bottom was more emotional. I was really young. Um, 
And so I didn't have a ton to lose in terms of material things anyway. It wasn't like, oh, I lost the wife, the kids, the house. Um, I didn't have that stuff. I, you know, my, my career was pretty non-existent at that point. I worked at a really rock and roll salon where it was okay to be a mess and chain smoke cigarettes all day. And we listened to loud music and looked cool, but I made no money. Right. Um, surprise, surprise. People weren't that interested in being my client at that time. <laughs> um, but I think I got to a place, you know, I was, um, I was the first time that I got sober, I was 20 years old. I was dating someone who was, I think he was 36. Um, he was in and out of jail through our entire relationship. Um, so like shocker of the century, like daddy issues and like someone raised by a heroin addict dates someone who could have been her dad and was a heroin addict. Right. Um, and I, I think I just got to a place where I looked at my life and I had seen this tape play forward for someone else. I watched my mom live it. And so I knew where it was going and it started to become undeniable that that's where I was going. And I think I had, it wasn't one radical moment, but a series of moments where I looked at myself and I didn't like who I was and I didn't like who I was becoming. Um, and I wanted to, I wanted to do something about it. And I think if I'm being completely honest, the first attempt at sobriety was probably trying to save my boyfriend at the time. I thought mm -hmm. if I get better, he'll get better and then we'll live happily ever after. Right. Um, because that's, a 20 year old's logic is that you can save someone um, by loving them enough and just being good enough. Um, and also I think rooted really deeply in my own codependency that I'm not going to do something for myself. Um, but maybe if this would make somebody else better, I would do it. And so I called the only person I knew who was sober. She worked at a coffee shop that I went to all the time. Actually, I didn't even call her. I MySpace messaged her um, to, <laughs> So now you guys know how old I am. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I just said, I think that I'm an alcoholic. Would you take me to a meeting? So, so Noelle, so like you didn't even know her? I kind of knew her. She was sort of adjacent to my life. She mm. was like a friend of a friend. And I saw her pretty often because she worked at a coffee shop that I went to all the time because I had never had anything to do or anywhere to be. So I but sat around the coffee shop drunk. You wouldn't consider her a friend, right? No, not really. I no. I, mean, I just kind of think of how desperate that is. I mean, where do you have to go? How desperate do you have to be? Again, in this case, a positive, you know, side of you know, desperate. But how desperate do you go to? You know, pretty much not a friend, right? Like like an acquaintance at best. You know, like how how desperate and how vulnerable do you have to be, or how do, you, or would you be to 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 kind of do that? You know, I think it, it's. It's one of those things like when I look back at that moment, it just sort of, um, I feel like I didn't even make that decision, you know, like it just, like, I feel like I was called to do it. And so I followed that like tiny voice, you know, and I think we all know when we have those moments and it was real quiet then. Um, but yeah, I just sort of left. I don't even know. Yeah, it, it didn't feel like I consciously made that decision. It was like something else made that decision for me, and I just followed it. You know. Wow. Yeah. So then she took you to a meeting, and what did that um, what did that first meeting feel like or look like to you? You know, I had I had some experience with twelve step recovery because my mom was in and out of recovery 
my whole life. And so I sort of had an idea of what it was. Um, and I know that when I think back to the times in my childhood that were really good, they were when my mom was clean and sober. Um, and so I, I think I thought of, you know, 12 step recovery groups as being a safe place. Um, but I think all I really knew about it was that people smoked a lot of cigarettes and drank a lot of coffee. Um, <laughs> you know, that's at least my, you know, through my kid lens, that's, that's what it seemed like to me. And, but I wasn't, I wasn't, I wasn't scared of the people that were going to be there. I think I was scared of what I was going to find out. And I went and I listened to someone who I think if, you know, I, I can't speak to what would have happened if he wasn't there, but the person who spoke, was so similar to me that it was undeniable that I was in the right place. He was like this punk rock guy. He was super cool. And like, he just lived a really similar life to me and the things that he talked about and the feelings that he had. Um, and also just superficially looking the same as me. I knew that I was in the right place. And thank God that he was there because if it had been someone who was like, you know, real beige cardigan and like drank brandy at her grand piano, I don't know if I would have heard it, you know, maybe, but, but this person who was there was just so much like me and what he described and the lifestyle that he lived and, and how he was different. Now I was like, Oh wow. Like this isn't, this is not a drill. I am in the right place. And I just sobbed. I, and I don't like crying in front of people. Mm-hmm. It's uh, huge for me to cry in front of people I don't know. And I just, you know, when you hold hands, I just <laughs> like ugly cry. That's probably what you were, were afraid of. Like what she said earlier that, uh, you know, a lot of people might think you're afraid to go because you're going to be in front of people. But really, she said she was afraid to go because she's going to really find out about herself, the inside, the hurt. It's, you know what I mean? That's, that's profound. You know what I mean? Cause it's easy. Well, it's not easy, but it's easier said that, you know, oh, you know, you're afraid to put yourself out there in front of everybody, but it's really, you know, you're not, you're not in front of anybody. You're in front of yourself. In front of yourself. That's, that's the real hard, hard part. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think confronting it in a way that was undeniable was the hardest part is it was, Oh, this isn't because then I think it was like that first moment where this isn't my mom's problem anymore. Like I have this problem now. And, uh, that was really hard to accept. Um, and did it put a a strain on your, your relationship with your mother? mm, I think certain points. Yeah, absolutely. Because I, you know, I didn't, I didn't um, maintain my sobriety at 20. I, I got, I've been sober since I was 22. Now I had a little, uh, relapse moment. Um, but I got it and I got it young and I, I've continued to stay clean and sober and, um, my mom's now passed, but she didn't, she didn't get it. Mm -hmm. Um, and so it became sort of this, certainly a point of contention where she felt judged or, um, Oh, you think you're this or that because you're sober and I'm not, you know, and, and just sort of, I think there were times when she thought that I didn't understand because I think, you know, it gets harder as you get older to stop. And I was lucky enough to have somebody else model what it looks like to not stop. So I got to stop young. I didn't have to wait, um, until it was, you know, point of no return, like 
bottomless pit, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that she was really happy for me and that um, I don't think she ever wanted me to live like her, you know? And I know that some, some people who have parents who have addiction problems, their parents introduce them to it or use with them. Um, and it was never like that. I don't think she ever wanted this life for me. So, you know, but there is that defensiveness and that just, you know, being an addict behavior where you kind of lash out because they want you to do whatever they want you to do. You know, there's that like, well, why won't you give me $20 now? This is rude, (laughs) you know? And and me just sort of practicing asserting boundaries around my relationship with her and what that looked like as like a sober young person um, and but still trying to have a relationship with her. There was definitely um, times when it was really complicated and hard. I mean, I have to, I have to I have to imagine that, especially in the mind of like a twenty year old, like where you're blaming a lot of your issues on your mom, and now and now you're trying to. I I just I just I mean again I, I don't know it just. I can see how that could be difficult, you know, even, 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 even maybe Noel's not even being completely fair to her at 20 years old, because none of us are fair to our parents at 20 years old. Right. You know what I mean? So, so mm-hmm. now you, you compound that with like, with, with addiction issues and then one's sober and one's not sober. I mean, I can imagine this would be pretty contentious. Yeah, it was hard, you know? And, um, and I think going back to like, some of the core issues of being raised, how I was raised, I thought if I got better that everybody I cared about would, you know, that that I could just be this model, this like shiny beacon of recovery Mm. and, uh, and everyone would follow suit and, and that, um, that I could impose my will on everyone around me by being good, you know? Mm. Um, so it was, yeah, it was really complicated. And I think, there were a lot of things that my younger self didn't really understand about like the disease of addiction. Um, even having it myself, um, you get more and more like of a deeper understanding of it with time. And, um, and I think just, you know, like you said, like anyone's relationship with their parents, I think the older you get, the more you have a consciousness of that. They're just a human being. They're not like this all knowing entity that like I think we prop them up as when we're children and so you start to have a lot more compassion for um that they truly did the best they could with what they had you know and so I think um there was a lot of resentment and a lot of how could you have been this way and why are you still this way why aren't you showing up for me in the way that I think you should um that now I've been able to move past in a real way and like truly like with my whole heart, like forgive her for that stuff. Um, which yeah, I did not have for a long time. It was hard. So speaking of heart, so how did you do it? I mean, what path did you take in order to, to overcome this? So I did, um, I joined, uh, a 12 step recovery group. So that was sort of my first introduction to recovery. Um, I went to meetings. I got, I've got a ton of sponsors. I, (laughs) I tried on a lot of sponsors. I got, the first one was actually the woman who took me to my first meeting. I was so scared of people and so uncomfortable that it was like, well, I know you, will you be my sponsor? Um, and she actually, you know, she'd been, she'd been in recovery for like, a long time. Um, 
but her, she, she didn't have the same problem as me. She didn't drink. She was a heroin addict, but of course that's probably why I felt comfortable with her too. Um, and she's like, yeah, like I'll, you know, I'll hang out with you. We can, we can do the 12 steps together. Um, so that was sort of my introduction to recovery was getting involved in like a recovery community and, um, going to meetings, getting a sponsor, working steps. Um, and, and then I think it got deeper for me. I, I realized that there were a lot of other things that I needed to address. So I think when a lot of like the healing started and when I could like really start to, um, be on a path towards real recovery is when I started going to therapy again, Mm -hmm. that was amazing. And like, just life-changing for me because I think that people confuse the two and there's a lot of borrowed language in 12-step recovery that comes from therapy and a lot of people who sponsor who like want to play therapist because it's super fun. Um, (laughs) But but to actually go to a therapist and have that space in conjunction with 12-step recovery, I think was everything for me. And it's still, I mean it's still a process. I'm still actively trying to recover, but, um, but those two things I think really were what saved me. How far you know, into, how far into your, um, into your 12 step work did you, uh, did you seek therapy? Like how many years were you in or months or days or whatever? That's a good question. I was probably quite a few years into like maybe, maybe six years clean and sober um, that, that I finally decided, Oh, maybe, maybe I need, maybe I need more help than what is available in a 12 step recovery setting. Um, So it took a while. And I think also I was in a place, you know, where my life got better and I had more resources. So I had access to that too, because you know, that's, not cheap no so that that was a big part of it and um and like it 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 started initially not even with the intention of being for me I thought maybe this is gonna be the thing that saves the people in my life that I want to save so it's like we'll all go together (laughs) and and I didn't really even think I needed it and then it it was another sort of moment where being in that session I just had this really like loud resounding voice be like you're supposed to be here and this is for you and so I started going by myself it's interesting how like her recovery has always been kind of around you know other people's you know recovery or or or, or therapy or whatever you know and I mean even even to use to use the word recovery I mean I think I think actually Nina talks about a little bit is that um you know recovery isn't just from drugs and alcohol but it's you know it's recovery from your own your own being you know and your own issues, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, you know, but when you, when you're doing it for somebody else, that's an excuse. It could be a, an excuse. To, th- maybe to, that's the question to her. You know, you know I mean, did, did you think that, that in your soul, you knew, you knew you needed it and you just use other people as an excuse, you know, somebody else to hold your hand through your next step of therapy or, or, or do you think, do you think your honest soul was like, he's going to be better because I'm going to therapy? Yeah, I think, um, I think probably both simultaneously, honestly, I, I think there was a lot of 
training that I got as a child that, um, it was my job to take care of everybody else. And that what I was feeling didn't matter as much as making sure that other people were okay. Um, and, and it's hard to undo that stuff and make yourself a priority and, and think of yourself as important. Um, when everything that you grew up with and all those messages said that you're not, um, that you, how you feel and you not being okay, um, isn't important, you know? So I think that there was a little bit of both, you know? Um, but I think ever the codependent, it will always, it it has always been, I'll say I've struggled with that in the past. It will not always be, but, um, it has always been more important to me that people I love and care about are okay than me, you know? And so that's always been sort of my introduction to me getting better, which is, yeah, I don't, I think it was subconscious though. Maybe not that deep down. I think I knew, but I didn't know, you know what I mean? Obviously when you start going for yourself, then your focus is on yourself. Yeah. When, you know, like at age 20 to, okay, you've been sober since 22, but age 20, when you relapse, when you're saying that I'm doing it for somebody else and you're not really necessarily doing it for yourself, it makes it not easier, but it's, there's an excuse that, you know, well, there's an excuse to start. Just how do you stay? To, yeah. To start again, because yeah. not necessarily it, it, it's for you. It's, it's, you know, it's, you're doing it for somebody else. So it, yeah. that's, you know, but when you started going for yourself, that's when things really, I guess, gets clear and, and, and strong. And that's when real growth, uh, you know what I mean? Because it's all about you. I mean, she said something pretty yeah. profound too, you know, in that, I mean, I'm going to put a, I'll put a little bit out there, but you know, her love language was, you know, helping others or, 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 or not for herself for others. You know, and I, I thought that was pretty profound and, and probably the beginning of her, uh, of her real honest to goodness recovery, you know, her life recovery. What's beautiful about that is that, once she goes for herself and becomes, uh, you know, sober, now she really can uh, help others. Yeah, you know what I mean, and put others forward. So, what do you do today to to stay strong? And so, I think um, what has gotten deeper for me now is my spiritual practice and trying to get in touch with something greater than myself. And I don't, I don't know what the heck that is, honestly. I mean, there's certain ways that I visualize it, but it's not anything concrete. Um, like no pun intended. <laughs> um, but that, I think when you have nothing else, when you have no one else, when you're totally alone, you still have that. And so trying to get deeper in, in my practice of like, prayer and meditation, um, and especially meditation, which has been a struggle for me, um, throughout sobriety. It's hard to sit still. It's hard to be quiet. It's easy for me to talk a lot. Um, (laughs) you know, so I can say, Hey, whatever you are, can I like have some help with this? But to just sit and listen has been a struggle. So I've been trying to get deeper with that. And then also, um, I have like a little support group that, I think I've, I've maintained throughout my sobriety. It's the members have changed, but I've always tried to have little, little people that I collect, um, for support through that stuff. Cause I think that's the biggest thing is it's easy to try and do this alone. Um, 
and and I think everything in like my brain will try and isolate me and and kind of keep me from getting better even after all these years it's like no one wants you there you're not good enough no one cares what you think no one cares about you um and it's easy to sort of wrap yourself in that blanket of isolation so i try and at least stay connected to people that will call me on stuff and um check me cuz i can't fix my crazy brain with my crazy brain as much as i would love to <laughs> like i can't like self help book it away i can't you know and um there's a lot of temptation to do that cuz you start thinking you're good and you're smart and you're awesome and like well i've been doing it for this long so I think those are the biggest things. It's like support and then prayer and meditation. I had a son. My son is um, almost 15 months old. So it's been hard to get out (laughs) in the world and like connect in that way. Um, So even like over the phone and all that stuff, like just trying to stay connected to people that I know are good people has been what I've been doing. um, So those people that you surround yourself with, are they sober or they're just the people that call you out in your BS? Both. Oh, that's both. That's good. You know. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think it's important. Yeah, we uh we were talking to Michael Cole a couple of weeks ago, and he um he's connected uh, via like some private Facebook pa- uh, pages, and he's also connected um like he's on like a what do you call it like a like a like a text group or something that that he uses um for 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 his support because because your story and 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 his story at least this part of your recovery is very similar about you know how, who are you accountable to. And he's got, mm-hmm. he's got a group of people that he's accountable to, but he says, you know, he's so busy and he travels so much that um, he does a lot of it via like text or, or again, on like Facebook, like private Facebook pages. So it's just amazing how like, you know, technology is even taking over that part of our life. And I, again, I say that with the most positive of, of lives, you know, um, yeah. it's just pretty amazing that, that we have that, we, we have that available to us, you know? So, um, I, I want to back up a little bit and like how long ago did your mom pass away and, and did she pass because of, of, of the drugs and stuff? So it will be three years, October 19th. Um, so it's pretty recent mm-hmm. and she, my mom uh, got cancer. And so, and when she caught it, it was everywhere. It was literally like they, it was so everywhere that they don't even know what kind of cancer it originated from. Um, But how I look at it is that she did, like, I think of it as she died from her addiction. My, my mom ended up with cancer because of her lifestyle. um, And it went unchecked for that long because of her lifestyle. So, you know, there was this very short dramatic period of time where she was sick and she was in the hospital, um, with the cancer. And so I think, you know, the easy answer is, Oh, she got cancer. And that's sort of my PC answer when, um, people I don't know very well ask me about it because it's a lot to get into. But in my heart, I, I know my mom was dying of her addiction problem for a long time before she was diagnosed with cancer. Um, and I think there was, a big part of me at first that was like, Oh wow. So a whole other dramatic scene to go through (laughs) around this, because when someone lives that way, um, you sort of just expect to get a phone call. You don't think that you're going to have to be confronted with them dying. Mm -hmm. Um, but now I look at it as I like, what a gift that I got to 
know what was going on. And I got to really show up for her as a daughter and like really say goodbye to her. Um, like what a miracle. I mean, my mom literally took her last breaths in me and my brother's arms, which was not something that I could have conceived of given the, her lifestyle choices. Um, so yeah, so that's the long answer. I mean, I mean, that is a blessing. You know, and what's another blessing is that now she has a 15 year old, I mean, 15 month old son that she can break that generational curse. You know what I mean? With, with her strength and her courage of being sober, she doesn't have to pass that one to her son. No, that's amazing too. Yeah. Yeah. That's my hope. You know, do you have, do you have like, do you have like conceived conversations in your head about what that'll look like? You know, once he starts to, uh, you know, come of age. Yes. It's a little terrifying um, because I know what I was like. I was not the easiest teenager in the world. Um, But uh, I'm going to be honest with him about it. That is for sure. Um, And at age appropriate levels for his entire life of just, you know, I think how I'm going to approach it is if you decide to do these things odds are not in your favor that you're going to be able to use these things um, like a normal person. And the longer he waits to try anything, the more chances he has of actually being able to enjoy them like a normal person. You know, the younger you start using drugs and alcohol, the more likely you are to become a drug addict or an alcoholic. So I'm going to be like, look, dude, if you want to like party sometimes, if you wait, you might actually be able to do it. But if you start now, you probably won't. You'll end up being a big old sober bore, just like your mama, you know? <laughs> so that's sort of, yeah. But I think I'm going to be really honest with him about, you know, like what I went through, what other people in our family went through and, and just that, you know, you probably got this too, kids. So maybe like, yeah, be cool about it. I mean, I'm not trying to make this about me, but it reminds me of, uh, you know, I, my family, uh, one of their addictions was is cigarettes, right? So mm-hmm. my grandfather passed away from cigarettes. My aunt just recently passed away. She had a lung transplant. She had it for 10 years, but she passed away because of cigarettes. My mom had early uh, stages of emphysema. And, you know, I was allowed to smoke at 14 years old in the house. And I smoked mm-hmm. up until I was like 31, 32 years old. The only reason why I quit is uh, my daughter, she was six years old at the time. And she would grab my cigarettes. I don't know if my wife put her up to it or not, but uh, I would come home and, you know, she was such a daddy's girl. She goes, Oh dad, I missed you. And she gave me a big hug. But what she would do is go in my pocket and grab my cigarettes and then crush them or throw them in the toilet. Then one day she came to me and she goes, dad, can cigarettes uh, kill you? And thinking to my head, if I say no, she's going to smoke. So, I told her the truth. I said, it does some people. And she got these really uh, watery eyes. She started kind of like crying. She goes, dad, I don't want you to die. Mm -hmm. Wow. And that was the last time I smoked. Wow. That's amazing. Good for you. It's not easy to quit smoking. (laughs) But you know, now she's getting married in a couple of weeks. And I thank God that neither my son or my daughter, they smoke. So, you know, by, by knowing that I have faith in you and your son for breaking that generational curse. That's what it is, right? Yep. I hope so. Let's get to the fun part of your story. Yeah. What's like, what's post-recovery look like for you? Well, not post-recovery, but you know, 
but where where are you, dude? Of that right, yeah. exactly. What's going now? <laughs> well, I think I mean, gosh, my life and what it looks like today. I, there's no way I could have even begun to conceive of what was in store for me, and I. I recently found a list of things that I wanted when I first got sober. Um, and there was stuff on it, like go to the dentist. I mean, really like I was like, that was as big as I could dream with stuff like that. (laughs) And I like, I've, I've had so many incredible opportunities. I've gotten to like travel, like do world travel, which was like so incredible. And, um, I think, you know, it's interesting because so much of it is tied in with this career. There are so many gifts that I've been given through being in recovery, but also from being in the beauty industry. You know, like when, when I got to go to Italy, it was for a hair class and it was just like, there there was no part of me that ever thought like, oh, you're going to get to go spend a week in Italy doing education. Like so amazing. And, um, I mean, I, what I wanted for my career when I first got sober was just to be like good at it. And now, um, I haven't been able to even take on a new client for almost two years because of the demand for my services. Um, which is like, wow, you know, um, no way I could have even conceived of that, you know? Um, (laughs) it just is crazy to think about. I mean, I have the most amazing supportive wonderful husband that you could ever imagine. And he is, he just is like nothing like I think what everyone who knew me in my life expected me to end up with. Like, he's just so kind and so loving and like, I just can't even begin to explain like what an amazing partner he is. Um, I have a a beautiful son like that just is like, Oh my gosh. He's my whole world. You know, he's, it's crazy. Like I made my favorite person, (laughs) you know, (laughs) um, and to have a business like my own business, like it, it just is like, I mean, I did the ribbon cutting the whole nine with the mayor, like, (laughs) like, so when you come from where I come from, it just is like, you can't even imagine a life like what I have, you know? And, um, I I think like all I wanted was like to live indoors full time, like always have a bed to sleep in, have food to eat when I was hungry. Like these were my goals, you know, and were these these uh, things that were literally on your list and on your sobriety? Oh yeah. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I was homeless on and off my, from the time I was four years old, you know, we lived in motels and in garages and, you know, public housing and, you know, there was no stability. Um, there wasn't always food when I was hungry, like stuff like this was, um, stuff that I struggled with until I got sober for real. Um, and yeah, that was absolutely stuff that I wanted, you know, like, um, like basic necessities, right? Yeah. Yeah. And to, and to be in a career, I think where, I think one of the things that I love about being in the beauty industry so much is it doesn't matter where you came from. People just care if you're good at what you do, you know, it doesn't matter what you look like or where you're from. Really. It's just like, are you good or are you trying to be good? you know, and, um, you're embraced by our amazing industry, which is like, I don't think there are a lot of 
career paths like that where, you know, like you can have a big old tattoo on your face and, you know, like, but if you're awesome at cutting hair, people are like, Hey, nice to meet you. You know? Um, I just think that's so beautiful and incredible. Well, even outside of sober October, you know, I mean, through the podcast, we've talked to many, many people, um, even, you know, super successful people too. And it's, it's interesting to me or, um, it's just interesting to me how many of those have used our industry as, you know, it saved me or, or it found me or, or what, or whatever, you know, and, and how many people in our industry, you know, don't live by the American standard of going to college and doing all that. You know, I mean, you have here a high school dropout and yeah. you're not the only high school dropout that we've had. Right. I mean, right. we've talked to other people and just how, how you're 100% correct. This industry doesn't care, you know, mm-hmm. can you do it? Can you not do it? You know, and that, that's all they, that, that, that's all it really cares about. And if you're trying, you know what I mean? Like she said, you'll be embraced. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. I mean, look at us. You know, look at this podcast. I mean, you know, we we're we're fifty years old and we came from nowhere. You know, and all of a sudden, like you know, people think it's a pretty cool idea, and we thought it was a pretty cool idea, and like we're we've been embraced incredibly. You know, you guys are killing it. Uh, well, thanks, Noel. Yeah, I I love your podcast, and I don't have a lot of time and space in my life for podcasts, but I listen to your podcast, and um, I love it. I think you guys are doing something really awesome, and I've listened to other attempts at industry podcasts. And I think, um, I like what you guys are doing the best. So I'm, I feel very lucky to be here. Oh, thank you, buddy. We feel lucky to have you. Uh, yep. Frank. Hey, love right you back know? at you. <laughs> That's crazy. I guess, uh, now that we're in the love fest, you know, <laughs> That's our industry. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. exactly. So Noel, just kind of like, just as we wrap up, like if you had like one piece of advice for somebody that was either early into their recovery or, you know, if, if you could, I don't even know how to say it. If, you know, you know, there's always that tipping point where you're on the fence, whether you're looking for recovery, whether you're looking for your old, your, you know, your, your current life at the time. If you had any advice for, for either one of those, what would it be? Wow. Um, don't try and do it alone. There are a lot of avenues to get help and not one is the perfect path for anybody, but don't do it alone. Get help from someone else or lots of someone else's is ideal, really. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. I love that. Well, Miss Noel, a very humble thank you. Thank you very, very much for uh, joining us on your day off. Thank you. This was so wonderful. It was so nice to get to get to know you guys and meet you guys. Please do meet you. Hey, hey, so there it is. Hey, this is a message that um, we've been trying to bring, I don't know, for the last couple of months, actually since we started the podcast. Hey, so if you like the podcast or if you find that it's useful, please, please, please leave us a review, a five-star review on iTunes. Um, leave us a rating and a review. But if you don't like it, Forget about it. <laughs> yeah, totally forget about this message. We also want to thank Sarah and Blaine from Pretty Gritty. Uh, Sarah and Blaine, they are a band out of uh, Portland, Oregon, and we just want to thank them very much for allowing us to use their song, Pleased to Meet You, on our podcast. Um, that's cool. I think you can find, actually, you can. You can find their music on, um, on iTunes. Peace and hair grease. <laughs>